Well, it's a privilege to be here tonight. Um, Pastor Matt had uh, checked in with me and he said uh, I wanted someone to fill in on May 7th. And he said, I, I made a list. I took the, um, I decided I would take the name of the finest preacher I could think of and uh, put that name at the top of a list and then maybe the most good looking speaker as well and put that name at the top of the list and then the most gifted speaker and put that name at the top of the list. And he said, uh, and amazingly, all three of those were the same person. Unfortunately, that guy couldn't be here tonight. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we're going to start this evening in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And uh, it's interesting to me that when God lays something on your heart, um, how God brings elements of um, the themes that we're discussing uh, together. And uh, this may be the um, real-life application of Pastor Dan's sermon from this morning. Um, as we look at the life of Peter, and uh, tonight we're going to, to take a look at some, some snapshots of restoration. Looking at the life of Peter, we're going to look at four particular scenes in the life of Peter um, to see how God worked in his life and how God, God brought Peter to a place where he could ultimately, ultimately serve him. Um, but we, we recognize as believers, even when we read the accounts of people in Scripture, they were people like us. And we, we all admit that there have been times where we have not done what we ought to. There are times where we have messed up along the way. And thankfully, God is gracious, and thankfully, God is kind. But in our lives, we try to do the right thing. We try to um, do the things we're supposed to do. But as we read this morning in Romans chapter 7, the things that we want to do, sometimes we don't do them. The things we know we shouldn't do, we tend to do those. And so no, no matter how hard we try, we find ourselves in places where we need the restoration work of God um, and the grace of God at work in our lives. Um, we've even experienced this, Ruth and I, t together. When we were first married, we lived in a little tiny two-bedroom apartment in Elkhart, Iowa. You've probably heard of Elkhart, Indiana. You probably have not heard of Elkhart, Iowa. Town of 200. The water was actually condemned when we lived there. And uh, this tiny little place. And I remember one night, we were pretty much still newlyweds, and I decided as the nice husband, I wanted to do something special for Ruth. And she was working at a nursing home. She got home about 11 o'clock at night. And so about 10.30, I said, I'm just going to have a nice bowl of popcorn ready for her when she gets home. I thought this would be a really kind, sweet thing to do. So um, this was before microwaves, or at least before we had a microwave. So I got out the Dutch oven of Ruth's new dish set, and I put it on the stove, and I put some oil in it. And I always put just a couple of kernels of popcorn in it and waited for them to pop. And then I would pour the rest of the popcorn in. And I, I did all of that. And I turned on the news to watch while I waited for a few minutes. And that, that night, uh, the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, was assassinated. So I got totally engrossed in this news story, not really thinking much about the Dutch oven, still warm. And uh, Ruth walked through the door, and she said, hi, how are you? And I said, fine, you won't believe it. And she said, what's that smell, before I could even finish the sentence? 
And I said, I don't know, oh, it must be the popcorn. So I went over and opened the lid of the Dutch oven. Now, had I actually, as a young husband, put oil in there, that would have been good, but I put caro syrup <laughs> in. So as we opened the Dutch oven, there is a mini diorama of the La Brea tar pits, right? This black bubbling ooze in the, uh, in the Dutch oven with three happy kernels of popcorn still on top. I didn't hear them pop because they didn't pop. And I remember Ruth looking at me, my new Dutch oven that we just got for our wedding. So um, I, not only didn't we eat popcorn, I ate some crow for a while. And my poor wife has had to deal with, with me and my, uh, my attempts at doing the right thing, but not always being successful at it. We as believers, there are times where we just don't do the right thing. And Peter is one of those people. So we're going to be, begin tonight in John chapter 13. We're going to look at, at a couple of different passages very quickly tonight in each one. But in, in John chapter 13, we see Peter in a place where he's really not listening to what the Savior is trying to tell him. They're at that, um, that Last Supper, the one that we just acknowledged in the communion service. And uh, as, as they're there, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something significant. And so when we begin in John chapter 13, we look at verse 2, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and, he was, and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Now this is snapshot number one, bravado. This is Peter's bravado. This is Peter saying, you know what, Lord, no matter what anyone else, what any of the other disciples do, I can do it better. I can do it more. I can be better at this than, than Lord, you've ever seen. I'm, I'm going to be the best disciple ever. So as Jesus comes around and begins to, to wash the feet of the disciples, an act of tremendous service, he gets to Peter and Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? And Jesus said, well, you, you don't understand. And Peter says in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. And so Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, if you don't really understand my service to you, you don't belong with me. And so Simon Peter, what does he do? Instead of being humbled by that moment, he says, well, Lord, okay, if that's the way it's going to go, then don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head too while you're at it. And Jesus says to him, he who is bathed, in verse 10, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Again, a reference there to Judas. But here I would note that Peter's bravado replaced service. He wasn't really grasping the concept 
of serving Christ and what Christ was doing for him, Peter, in this moment of bravado, says, Lord, you don't need to serve me because, you know, I can do this by myself. I can be what you want me to be, Lord, and I'll do it really well. And Jesus speaks to him and says, Peter, but you need me to serve you. That's the point of what you're about to experience in the days ahead. Unless we think, well, okay, maybe Peter learned from that. Um, You know, maybe that bravado settled down. When uh, we look uh, later in the chapter, particularly um, uh, when when we look at what he did with um, the, the announcement of his betrayer, beginning in verse 18, Jesus tells them about the fact that he's going to be betrayed. And when he gets to to the end and he starts talking about them, Peter says, well, Lord, I I would never betray you. And by the time we get to verse 34, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, and here's bravado kicking in again, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. So Peter's bravado didn't just replace service, it replaced sacrifice. Peter was more interested in being kind of the top dog and the lead person rather than really understanding the sacrifice that Jesus was about to make. And before we even look at at Jesus' response to him, you know, I think we, we see this in Peter because he's all bravado and this is what I'm going to do. So after this, when Jesus gets to the garden, he says to his disciples, will you come pray with me? And what does Peter do? He falls asleep. When, when the servant comes up of the high priest, and what does Peter do? Rather than turning to the Lord, Peter immediately pulls out the sword impulsively and lops off the ear of the servant. And Jesus very graciously picks up the ear and puts it back on the servant and says, Peter, Peter, don't get ahead of yourself. Peter has this incredible level of bravado. And he comes as a disciple of Christ. And he comes as someone who's walking with Christ after being with him for three years. And yet Peter, even in this moment, this very intimate moment where Jesus is giving them key teaching about what's going to happen in the future, Peter is the one who's saying, well, Lord, let me, let me tell you how great I'm going to be. And Jesus says, Peter, that's not at all what's going to happen. He says in verse 38, Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. I don't think Peter believed that was possible. Peter was right there. He was going to be beside his Savior. He was not going to let anything happen to him. And yet, we see by the time the night is over, something different has happened. As, as we look at that part of the narrative, we're going to move out of the Gospel of John for a moment into Luke chapter 22. So we will come back to John later in the book of John. But if we could look in Luke chapter 22, in this section, and there's a, a particular detail of this section that I think is, is significant that's shared by Luke and isn't shared by John. But the Peter of bravado now is now confronted with the fact that Christ is going to the cross. And because it's been all about Peter and all about himself, Peter is is now in this place where he really isn't sure what to do in this moment. 
He's tried to step in and protect Jesus. That didn't work. And so he's watching from, from a distance. In verse 54 of Luke chapter 22, we read, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him, that is Jesus, into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them, and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he, that is Peter, denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Imagine denying the Savior that you just said you would, you would give your life for him. But Peter just doesn't deny him once. Verse 58, after a little while another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also is with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And this brings us to our second snapshot. If we first see Peter's bravado, the next snapshot we see is Peter's brokenness. Because immediately, in verse 60, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And Peter, who was told he would deny the Lord three times, Peter is suddenly confronted with the reality that he's just done exactly what Jesus said he would do. So that's point A, if you're taking notes, the denial. Not just the denial once, maybe we should say the denials, all three of them. He, he denies the fact that he's with Jesus. This one who said he'd follow him said, I don't really know him. And, and here's the part, here's the text that's in here that John doesn't record. In, in verse 61 it says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine what that gaze would have been like? To, uh, to look up, knowing you've denied the Lord three times, and suddenly have the Lord in the midst of his trial turn and meet your gaze and be aware of it. And that's letter B if you're following the gaze. Not long after the great Cairo syrup incident, Ruth and I were moving from Elkhart, Iowa, to a little condominium in Ankeny. And we, we moved on a day when it was really, really cold outside. It was below zero. It was just the two of us. We were loading up the car. We would take a load. And we, we had to be out of our little apartment by midnight. And so um, we, we'd been moving all day. And you know when you get that, you've been moving and you're just exhausted and tired and at the end of the day, we had everything done, and I thought, good, it's, it's 10.30, we're wrapped up early. And Ruth looked at me and said, don't forget, we still have my plants back at the apartment. Would you, you know, we, we need to get them. Again, being the young, loving husband I thought I would be, I said, I'll go get them. You know, my best, like, Dudley Do-Right voice, I'll go do it. And so at 10.30 at night, with a 20 below zero in the middle of the, the dead of winter in Iowa, I drove up the miles, and I, you know, you're just tired, and I went in, and I got all the plants out, and I checked, and I did a last walkthrough of the apartment, and I locked up all, all the doors. 
I got them all settled in the car in a nice way so they wouldn't tip over, and I got home and uh, got to back to the condo, and boy, I just fell into bed. I was so tired, and I fell asleep, and I got up the next morning, and Ruth said to me, thank you for going to do that. Where are my plants? And I remember this really long moment of my brain can't even comprehend what you're saying. I had left the plants in the car when I got back um, where, where it, they didn't survive very well, that experience. But I remember as this young husband looking at my wife and having her give me a look. The look went something like, you know, I agreed to be your wife because I thought you were going to be the spiritual leader of the family, and I thought that came with some level of intellect with it, Todd, and it's, it's, it's just not there. And uh, I really didn't know what to say, and I imagine as I got the first two words of that story out, Ruth knew exactly where I was going with that story. She, she, I don't think I will ever forget that gaze. Um, by the way, if you think this is going to be filled with all of Todd's dumb stories, um, no, we're, we're done. Those are the only two dumb things I've done in our married life. <laughs> she's, she's agreeing with me. I heard her say, yeah, right. So uh, <laughs> anyway. But I remember that look. And there might have been a few times throughout our married life where she, she would give me that look. Really? Really? Well, imagine having the Savior, whom you've just said, not maybe 12 hours before, Lord, I'll do anything for you. And then you deny him three times and look at his gaze. Imagine what that must have been like for Peter. And we read that Peter remembered the word of the Lord, what he said to him. And in verse 62, so Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter here is broken. And I would also note that in the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus' appearance, we don't hear much about Peter. Peter does run to the tomb with John, their foot race. Uh, we, we see a couple instances of Peter there, but Peter, who was very much often the spokesperson following this event, we don't hear much from Peter. Peter is somewhat silent when Jesus comes to meet with the disciples. It's only Thomas who says, Lord, show me your, your hands and your side because I won't believe unless I see the wounds. Peter is notably silent at this time. And I believe Peter was genuinely broken and humbled by the fact that as hard as he wanted to be that special person for the Lord and serve him well, Peter denied the Lord three times. Now, if the story ended there, that would be a pretty sad account. I'm delighted to say that's not where the account ends. If you turn back to the Gospel of John, chapter 21, we find that the disciples in, in verse 1 are at the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, and they're, they're talking to themselves, and they're out and they're fishing, and, and someone on the shore calls to the disciples and says, have you caught anything? Children, have you caught any food? And they answered with the one word, no. And this person who called from the shore, Jesus, says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. 
So they cast, and they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, this is a way John would refer to himself, either as that certain disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. The other disciples came in with the boat, and they came in with, with a... Uh, pardon the pun, a boatload of fish. And they came, and they came to land, and they find Jesus there. And I just find, in verse 9, one of the greatest acts of the graciousness of our Savior, because it says, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. This is our third snapshot, from the denial to the gaze And then the grief of Peter. Now our third snapshot is breakfast. Think of all the things that the ascended, resurrected Lord, Savior could do. Think of all the places where he could have been. Imagine what it would have been like if Jesus had chosen to go out and preach in the center of Jerusalem following his resurrection. Think of all the things that the powerful and great risen Christ could do. And what is he doing at this moment? He's standing on a beach and he's making breakfast for his disciples. Is that a tremendous act of grace? While the disciples should have been the ones serving him, once again, he's serving them. And so they, they bring the fish and they, Jesus said to them in verse 12, come and eat breakfast. Obviously, Jesus looked a little different in some way after the resurrection. We don't know. It says, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. In other words, they knew that it was the Lord. There was just, they normally would have asked, who are you? And so Jesus, in verse 13, then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise, the fish. So Jesus here comes to the disciples, Peter being the first one to reach him, and he serves them breakfast. What a tremendously personal, intimate thing for the risen Savior to do. So he sits down with Peter, and he says, and you're probably, I'm sure you're familiar with these verses, verse 15, when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Probably a reference to the other disciples. Peter, do you still love me? Is that bravado still in you? Aren't you ready to say, Lord, you know I love you more than anyone in history has ever loved you? But Peter can't even respond with with the word that Jesus uses, which is, do you love me with an agape love? Peter responds with, yes, Lord, you know, Lord, you're aware that I love you, using a brotherly love kind of word. And so Jesus said, feed my lambs. Says to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you love me with an agape love? Do you love me with that everything kind of love? And Peter, the Peter that we've seen throughout all of Scripture, you would expect to say, Lord, I love you more than anything. But Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, using that word phileo, the brotherly love. And finally, Jesus looks at him the third time. He says, Peter, do you love me with that brotherly kind of love? And Peter, I think, still grieved and broken, 
It says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He wasn't challenging Peter to be, he's just saying, meeting Peter where he is. And here, Peter says to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And this word for know isn't just an intellectual knowledge, it's an experiential knowledge. Lord, Lord you, you've experienced that I love you. But here Peter no longer has bravado. The, the Peter who is broken by his own denial now confronts Jesus and speaks to him from authenticity of what he's really feeling and experiencing. And in all three cases, Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Then he says, tend my sheep, which is really to shepherd my sheep, and then feed my sheep. And so here, once again, Peter is called to serve. Remember, Jesus was talking to them about service, and Peter wasn't listening. Well, Lord, let me, let me do whatever it is I need to do. And here, Peter listens as Jesus says to him, I want you to serve me again, Peter, and I want you to serve me by tending my sheep, by taking care of them, by feeding them. And in verse 18 of this uh, same passage, Jesus then tells him something he doesn't really want to hear, I'm sure. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he, Jesus, spoke, signifying by what death he, that is Peter, would glorify God. So once again, Jesus uh, calls him to sacrifice. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down and, and died, then he did die, in, uh, in service of the, of the Lord that saved him. But in the upper room, Peter wasn't ready to hear about sacrifice. Now, in his brokenness, he's ready to hear. And so... Jesus then says, in verse, at the very end of verse 19, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Had Jesus heard those words before? He had. Had Jesus spoken those words rather to Peter? He had. In Matthew chapter 4, remember, Peter and his brothers were fishing, and Jesus said to him, follow me and I will and if you've grown up in Sunday school, you can probably do the hand motions, right? I will make you fishers of men. And so Jesus calls Peter to follow. He's called to follow. Once again, all the things that Jesus had called Peter to do, I'm not sure Peter ever understood that. I'm not sure Peter really understood what it meant to follow, what it meant to serve, what it meant to sacrifice because he was so busy thinking about where he fit in and how great he could be. And in his brokenness, Peter comes to a place where once again he can hear what the Lord, he hears what the Lord is saying and he can deal with it. And the question I'd ask is, when was Peter a fisher of men? When did he actually go out and make an impact for Jesus? He did the things that Jesus called him to do. When did Peter become a fisher of men? Well, I think that's yet future in Peter's life as we look here. And so we're going to look at our fourth snapshot very quickly, Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. And just as a, as a sense of our own timeline, as we think about this from a timeline perspective, 
Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. So all of this has taken place within a 50-day period of time. When we get to the Pentecost, Jesus has ascended up into heaven. And we still don't hear much about Peter other than this moment. And so in, in Acts chapter 2 and at the, at the first 13 verses, the crowd is, is hearing people speaking in tongues and starting to preach the gospel. And they say, wait, they're, they're full of new wine, meaning they're just intoxicated. We have no idea what they're doing. And it says in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, but Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them. I find this fascinating because we know Judas is gone. There's 11 disciples left. One of them has denied Jesus three times. And as they're there and as they're experiencing the Holy Spirit coming upon them, which one of them is it that stands up and preaches? It's Peter. It's Peter who I think finally is touched by the concept of what it really means to serve Jesus and what it really means to accept sacrificial following of Jesus and to do what it is he's called to do. And so we read that, that Peter preaches this amazing sermon. This is not the experience that we've seen of Peter throughout the Gospels. And when we come to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says... Uh, excuse me, verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Isn't that amazing that this Peter, this guy, who has been someone who has failed Jesus, is brought back into right relationship with him by the grace of God after a breakfast? And Jesus, who could have been the one standing there and preaching, singles out Peter, who's filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's Peter who stands up, and 3,000 souls come to Christ. And so, from snapshot number four, I call this bravery. Peter suddenly gets a distinction between what bravado and bravery is. Bravado is all about me. Bravery is stepping in where God wants you to go. And Peter steps into it, and God works through him. Jesus could have used any one of the 11, but he used Peter. He is the one who had failed at some point. And so we see his preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. And then we see his partnership. We didn't take time to look through all the passages, but it seems like there was a little bit of friendly rivalry between Peter and John throughout this. John records that when they ran to the tomb, John says Peter got there second. You know, he calls that out. There are several places where there's a bit of a rivalry but which two are the ones who are there when we look in Acts chapter 3, verse 1? Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. If we read Acts chapter 3, verse 11, Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 13, Acts chapter 4, verse 19, who are the two primary disciples who are ministering? It's Peter and John, both very different in the way they approach life. Jesus is as uh, Jesus, the one loved John, is the one he loved, and Peter was the impetuous one. God uses both of them together to bring great things for himself. So Jesus restored the one who failed. Isn't it great that he does that with us? Isn't it great that it's his grace that allows us to serve him, and it's not because we're anything in and of ourselves. It's all because of the grace of God. And you may say, well, you know, 
You know what would be really nice? Is if after I fail, if Jesus would come make me breakfast. Maybe I would feel differently. So I'd like to close with a word of encouragement very quickly. Book of Revelation. If you turn to Revelation chapter 19, I just want to say to you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you feel like you have failed the Lord, you probably have as we all have. No one of us in this room is perfect. We all have known things that God has called us to do and we've chosen to not do them. I want to share with you that the God that we serve is a gracious and a loving God who restores his people because of his grace and because of what he's able to do. It wasn't because Peter was better than the other disciples. It was because he decided to follow Jesus and the Holy Spirit got a hold of him and he stood up when he needed to stand up and he preached and God worked through Peter. You say, well, but I failed and I'm a little scared about what it's going to mean when I actually stand before Jesus. I mean, it's not like I'm going to be on a beach and there's going to be coals with fish and bread. But in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us rejoice, be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you realize when we get to heaven as the bride of Christ, as the church, Jesus is preparing for us, he's preparing a home for us. He's not waiting there to chide us and to point out all of our failures. He's not waiting there to point out all the ways that we could have done better. He's preparing a marriage supper for us even now that when we get to heaven, we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb clothed in fine array, clothed in white, as those who are the bride of Christ. And that's not because you and I have done great things in this world. It's because... We're his bride, and he loves us, and he's preparing a home for us right now. We serve a wonderful and a gracious God who forgives us when we fail. He wants us to come into right relationship with him. He wants us to change our hearts, but sometimes that path is through brokenness. May God allow us to accept the grace that he brings to us through, through his great kindness. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for the opportunity that we have to open your word. Thank you that our Savior is preparing a place for us. Thank you that it will be a blessed time, not a scary time when we get to heaven. Oh, we, we will at some point give account, but we also know that your word tells us that everyone shall find praise from God. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we look forward to which will be amazing. Help us to serve, not because of our own bravado and because of our own strength, but because we serve a Savior who's gracious. And to him we give the honor and glory and come to you in his precious name. Amen.